0: But uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Commission. It's great to have new visitors with us here this morning as well. And so we welcome you. Uh, Brad Claussen, who also pastors this Bible study, is up in Seattle this weekend. He's uh, teaching up there this weekend. So you can be thinking of him and praying for him in those opportunities. I believe Heather's with him up there this weekend for that. And uh, my name's Rodney Anderson, if you're new, and uh, also help lead the the group here and commissioned, and it's a joy uh, to be part of this group. So if you're visiting, keep coming back. Um, at least come back again when Brad's preaching as well. <laughs> so, um, but it's a joy for me to uh, to be able to have the opportunity to look at God's word with you today. Uh, as I've had opportunity, been speaking in the book of James, and we'll be looking at the book of James again today. Um, But first, before we get into that deep, I wanted to talk to you about a certain game. Okay, a certain game. And uh, see if you know what game that I'm talking about. This is a game uh, that's played around the world and it's popular in every known culture. This game can be played by just one person or with a very large group as well. Maybe you're already thinking of what it might be. Many play this game, but no one who plays it ever really wins. All right, it's played in the highest levels of government and also in the poorest of households. The humble rarely play this game, and wise parents don't permit their children to play it. And this game, in fact, is found in Scripture, and it's recorded, actually, as the first game that's ever played. So I, I wrote this riddle here. I don't know if you know what it is. What is this game that fits all these characteristics? Well, the blame game, yes. It is the blame game. I, uh, that's what we used to call it in our house kids were not allowed to play the blame game. If they were caught for doing something wrong, it wasn't uh, able to blame uh, their sibling on it. And so we can credit Adam and Eve as the inventors of this game. If we want to say the word credit, if if that's the right word. Uh, Adam disobeyed God and in his shame said, it's the woman that you gave me. That's, That's the problem here. And then Eve, not wanting to miss out on this very first event, the inaugural playing of the blame game jumped in as well. And said, it's the serpent, uh, the serpent deceived me. So she jumped in as well. And from that time, sin was introduced into the world through Adam's sin, and this game has been played since that time. Again, children, uh, you hear them playing it, saying words like, he started it. Politicians play this game, blaming the previous administration always. Anything that goes wrong... It's got to be the previous administration or somehow the other party's fault. Husbands blame their wives for their sin. Wives blame their husbands. People blame their parents for the way that they are. Many blame God for the situation that they have found themselves in, saying, I had no other choice but to sin. Others blame God for the way they were made. God made me with these desires. I can't help it. But the blame game is played. All the time in the world, and if you examine your own life, perhaps you've played it as well. In fact, I think a lot of us can find that at times we have tried to blame others for sin in our lives. And you could even perhaps look back at a time for that. Well, the text we're going to look at today talks about this. Talks about the blame game and how we cannot put blame on God for our sin. That that is blasphemous actually to do. It also, this text, identifies the true source of blame for our sin. And it's not someone else. As we'll see. So as we look at this passage, we're going to find that identifying the source of blame or the source of our sin and temptation is the way that we can have victory over sin. I hope That is your goal. I hope you desire to have victory over your sin. If we truly understand sin for what it is, we recognize it is that which brings misery in your life. It is that which has consequences that destroy your life. If you are seeing horrible things in the world, if you are seeing horrible things in your own life, you can guarantee that was caused by sin. So we are going to look at that. And the text we're looking at today is James 1, verses 13 to 15. Let's read that together here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So as we see in this passage, the source of sin, the first thing we're going to see here, number one, is don't blame God for your sin. Don't blame God for your sin. So before identifying where blame should go, James makes clear where it doesn't belong. God is not to blame for sin. And this should be self-evident that no one should blame God for their sin, and yet it happens all the time. Again, Adam and Eve, the very first people on this earth, blamed God. It's the woman that you put here. People still blame God using a logic as, well, God's in control of all things, And he brought maybe a trial into my life. In fact, didn't we already see that in James 1, verses 2 to 4? So God's in control. He brought a trial. And if I didn't have this trial or difficulty in my life, I wouldn't have sinned. Therefore, God is to blame for my sin. That's the faulty logic that many go down and begin to blame God for their sin. But we'll see here in this passage that It is wrong on a number of levels. And the first thing we need to see in this passage is, this is the wrong statement. This is the wrong statement to make. To say that God is to blame. Verse 13 starts off, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So let no one say, he starts off. And it's in the present, it's a present imperative with a negative, do not do this. The meaning there, understanding the tense that verb is this was going on. This was happening. People were blaming God, the people that James was writing to. He's saying stop it. Not don't maybe do this, but stop doing what you're doing right now. And I think it's not only the case, the people that James is writing to, but, but we could say that today. People need to stop doing that because that is ongoing. It's happening right now. People saying, I'm being tempted by God. But we may say, okay, where does this come from? Um, All of a sudden, this accusation that people are making, I'm being tempted by God, in the flow of what we've been studying. We've been seeing, starting from verse 2, all about trials. Now, it almost seems like this accusation comes out of the blue. Why suddenly is there James addressing this accusation that people are making against God? So to do that, let's look back at chapter 1 and where we've come so far in our study of James chapter 1. This is an outline of the book of James that we've looked at before. And the book of James, the overall theme of the book of James, as we've discussed, is genuine faith on display. And James gives 13 marks of genuine faith. This is what it looks like, uh, the behavior of a believer looks like. If you truly know and love the Lord, this is how your life will look like. Therefore, it serves to assist us as believers in examining our lives and if we need to repent. And it also helps those who don't know if they're saved to say, am I truly saved? Are these things true in my life? So we see in this, we're still looking at the very first mark of genuine faith, verses 2 to 18, that's genuine faith considers trials as joy. And it's a fairly large section, verses 2 to 18, so we've broken up it in different parts. So we've looked at verses 2 to 4, that we need to think rightly during trials. Verses 5 to 8, pray expectantly during trials. And 9 to 12, maintain perspective during trials. And now we're going to see distinguish accurately between trials and temptations. And we're not going to be able to cover all verses 13 to 18, so we'll just look at 13 to 15 today. But as you see, even in this outline here, he's been talking about trials. Think rightly on trials, pray expectantly during trials, maintain perspective during trials. And now, let's talk about temptation. Well, where does this come from? Well, part of the answer to that is understanding the word, the Greek word behind our English words. And the Greek word behind trial or test is the same Greek word as the word for temptation. So though it seems like he's making maybe a a shift, he's really following along the same theme here. In verse 2 when he writes... Consider all joy when you encounter various trials. That's our word here. Pera is the root of the word, and it's sometimes in noun form. It can be put in a verb form as well. But it's there in verse 2. It's there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. And then it shows up repeatedly in verses 13 to 15 in the verb form in these cases. And it's translated here as tempted. So we may say, okay, he's going along the same theme here, but the translators, why did they translate it many times as trials and then translate it as temptation later? How do we understand this shift in meaning? Well, as we can see, the Greek sometimes has one Greek word that has different English um, definitions, So, trial, temptation. It's the same in reverse. We know that with love, right? We use one word, love, and there's multiple Greek words. So, this is the same idea, but in reverse, where there's one Greek word, but more English words. So, what do we mean when we distinguish between trials and temptations? And that's important that we're able to know the difference between the two. I think we may instinctively know that, but let's think through it more specifically. When we talk about trials, a trial is to be tested or tried to learn the nature or character of something. So this is a test, a trial, like a trial run. It's a test that's done to see, okay, what is going to be the result? And when we look at trials in the scripture, or tests, we see that God does test people. Testing is something that God does. Genesis 22.1 makes that very clear of God testing Abraham. And this is, of course, the passage where God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his one and only son. There's another example in Deuteronomy 8.2, where God says they were tested in the wilderness. It says, you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God had led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So testing is definitely uh, the realm of God. This is what he does to reveal whether we have genuine faith or not. And that's what we saw in verses 2 to 4 of James chapter 1 as well that God brings trials and tests into our life to reveal whether we have genuine faith. And so we can rightly see God's work in trials. Temptations, on the other hand, is a bit different. And I think we understand that in our usage of the word. It's to entice someone to improper behavior would be a very general definition. John Owen uh, gives a more complete definition, saying anything... Temptation is anything that, for any reason, exerts a force or influence to seduce or draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him to any kind of sin. So we can see that. It's a force or influence to seduce and draw away the mind and heart of man to any kind of sin. Now, definitionally here, it says anything. But when we think in Scripture of who tempts us, how, where does temptation come from, I think naturally we think of the Satan or the devil, don't we? And rightly so. Satan is called the tempter. In 1 Thessalonians 3.5, he's called the tempter there. And we see Satan in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve. We see Satan in the wilderness with Jesus, tempting Jesus to disobey. So we understand that Satan is indeed the tempter. And that is where temptation comes from. But it also comes from the world as well. Now we could say Satan is behind the world's temptation. And I think that's true to a large extent. But as we think of it, we can think of any, anything, whether it's even an object that tempts us, or the world, or Satan himself. We face temptations. We are enticed or induced to do something that does not please God. Now, what's important to understand is there are two kinds of temptation even. There's an internal temptation, and there's external temptation. So we need to be able to understand the difference between that. And I think in a very uh, simple way, we even use that in our our common language. We can say, uh, someone may... Tempt me with a plate of brownies. Say I'm trying to lose weight, and they bring a plate of brownies. They try to tempt me with that. I love brownies. (laughs) I mean, they're so good. I really, really like brownies. And you get the ice cream, you put the hot fudge on there. It's fantastic. It tempts me. Now, someone may say, I'm going to tempt you with some sour gummy worms you know what? There's nothing in me that wants a sour gummy worm. They're disgusting. <laughs> if you think otherwise, I just don't know what to tell you. I pity your soul. No, I, um, my, my kids like sour gummy worms. I know others enjoy those. But I would say, someone may say, I'm tempting you with these sour gummy worms. But those don't tempt me at all. So you can say there may be an external temptation, like, hey, sour gummy worms. You're not supposed to eat these because you're on a diet. And it doesn't tempt me. There's an external temptation that can be there, but no internal temptation. There's nothing in me that is tempted by that. And so we often use terms like that. Now there's something in me that does is tempted towards brownies, of course, but not sour gummy worms. So Understanding these two things. So an external temptation is when someone or something outside of us entices us to sin. And again, we talked about Satan being a tempter and the world might tempt us to sin. But there's also an internal temptation. And that's our heart's desire for something that is sinful. That is when inside of us, we long for something. And in a biblical realm, it is, we're longing for something that is sinful. And that is an internal temptation that we have. And because we are fallen, and we still have indwelling sin, we are internally tempted towards things. We need to fight against it, but that does happen. And it's internal temptation is what the passage we're looking at today talks about. And understanding what temptation is and understanding the differences between internal and external temptation is very helpful as we go through this passage and the, other, the questions that it might bring up. Now again, what is the context here that we find this passage? It's, James has been talking about trials and difficulties that people have gone through to test their faith. And there are those who pass the test and when we pass the test, what, we, we grow in endurance. And endurance results that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Spiritual growth. But there are those who fail the test. And those who fail the test, when difficulty comes and they don't have genuine faith, it's very easy to turn around then and blame God. Well, if this difficulty was not here, I would not have sinned. And that's why I responded sinfully. Therefore, God is to blame for what I've done. Now, what James will tell us is hey, that's crazy talk. You can't say that. You can't say that God caused you to sin. God is not even remotely to blame. In this verse, this first part here, in the wrong statement that James points out, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And the the preposition that's used there is even instructive to us. We don't uh, think much of it in English, but by God, by means the cause or reason of something. But this particular preposition in Greek is more, has a remote idea to, to it or an indirect idea to it. So what he is saying here is God is not even indirectly or remotely causing you to be tempted. It's not in any way related to God. It's not just denying the direct cause of God in your temptation, but even perhaps an indirectly saying that God caused this temptation. So this is a wrong statement to make. James says it is, you must stop saying that you're being tempted by God. And he follows that up with the reason why. He says, for or because, let me tell you why this is the wrong reason, for it's two things, two reasons this is a ridiculous thing to blame God. And the first is this, God cannot be tempted by evil. And what he's saying with that is, it's incompatible with God's character. To blame God for tempting you to evil is incompatible with God's character. A right understanding of God should prevent a person from ever blaming God for their sin. When we understand who God is and his righteous, holy character, we know he's repulsed by sin. He abhors sin. To say that he's tempting me to sin, well, that's everything that's against who God is. God is a holy God. We read that in Isaiah 6-3 and Revelation 4-8 as well. Holy holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Some of you had heard, perhaps, Brad taught on the holiness of God and Men of the Word the other week, and I was able to listen to the podcast, or the uh, download of that. It was an uh, excellent. And, and understanding God's holiness, this is very important, prevents us from saying that God would ever tempt me to evil. God's holiness consists of two different aspects. One, it's his his transcendence or his majesty, that God is above all things. He's, he's different than us. He's distinct. He's separate from who we are. And that's part of what it means that God is holy. But the second part that's also important is, means that God is morally pure. And his holiness also points to his moral purity, that he has no sin in him at all. I know one Puritan writer wrote that if you consider all of the oceans and say that represents the character of God, and if just one drop was put in there of sin, that it would pollute that entire ocean. That would be a very powerful poison indeed. But God is such that there is not that one drop of sin in all the oceans. There is no wickedness, no evil in Him at all. He is a perfectly holy God. Again, it means He's transcendent and morally perfect. And as we think of the morally, moral perfection of God and His holiness, we can think of verses like Habakkuk 1.13, where it says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. God could never approve sin. Throughout the book of Leviticus, many times it says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, pointing to the need for them to live morally righteous. And that's repeated for us in 1 Peter, where it quotes from Leviticus. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So again, we see this holiness can refer to moral perfection. And God is a holy God. God cannot be tempted by evil. It's ridiculous to say such a thing. It's unthinkable because his character stands in opposition to everything that is evil. So James says, stop saying that. Stop stop blaming God. God's a holy God. He cannot be tempted by evil. He is separate from evil. But not only do we see it's incompatible with God's character, um, it's also incompatible with God's actions as well. So the second part of that verse, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And this second part is the corollary of the first. Of course, since he is character, is, is perfectly holy and morally perfect, he can't does not tempt anyone, cannot tempt anyone. But this also points to his actions. This is something he doesn't do. This is not the type of thing that God does. And when we think about what God does in regards to sin, as we look at the testimony of the Old Testament and the New, can we say that, okay, God would tempt someone to evil? Consider God's actions in regard to sin. God sent prophets to warn men about their sin, repeatedly telling them, you must flee from sin. You must put to death the sin in your life. Scripture tells us again and again that God brings judgment on men for their sin. In Romans 2, it talks about you storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment because of sin. If God... Does these things, would He also tempt someone to sin? Certainly not. And more than both of those is this third one here. God the Father sent His beloved Son to suffer on the cross. And Isaiah 53 says He crushed Him, His one and only Son, to pay the penalty of sin. Would God who sacrificed His own Son To pay for the penalty of sin, be a God who would also tempt us to sin? Certainly not. And to say such a thing does not make any sense at all. So James shuts that down. He says, do not say that God is tempting you to sin. That is wrong. Well, that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Okay, well, if that's the wrong person to blame, who can I blame? Uh, I think most people are like, all right, got to find someone to blame. Uh, it's got to be someone, just, just not me. Well, James tells us that is who to blame. It is you. Our point two is blame yourself for your sin. That's the only place that blame belongs, is on yourself. He starts off in verse 14, but each one is tempted... When he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And now we see the true source of sin. We're going to see here the true source. And then the tragic sequence of sin as well. But first, the true source here. Rather than God being the true source, we see that the real source is much closer to home. And that is your own lust. Now what is lust? Lust? The word here in Greek is epithemia, and it's, it's a strong desire. And this word can be neutral. It can refer to um, a non-sinful type of desire. But almost always, except for just a couple exceptions, is used in a negative way in Scripture. Now, today when we use the word lust, almost always we think of a sexual lust. That's how the word is commonly used today. But it's not limited to that in this passage. It can include that, but it's certainly not limited to that. Lust is more than just sexual desire. Lust refers to any desire or craving for something, number one, that God calls evil. There's an unlawful desire. If God calls something evil, we're certainly not to desire after. That would be an unlawful lust or desire. Uh, Seeking your enemy to fail. Uh, seeking uh, physical intimacy with someone who's not your spouse. These are unlawful desires. Desiring that you would be praised above others. That is a sinful desire to have. So that is a lust. But it's also an inordinate desire. A desire that goes beyond what is acceptable to the Lord. So you can have a reasonable desire, a An amoral, a non-sinful desire, such as you desire to have no traffic on the way home. I have that desire every day. Uh, You can desire to have a good meal when you get home. You can desire for your husband to bring you flowers on a weekly basis. These aren't bad desires to have. But it becomes an inordinate desire when we desire that thing so much that that becomes more important than honoring God in that desire. And then then it's not just a desire that is a sinful lust. And James is speaking of that as well. That there is lust in our heart that takes these things that are natural but when we place them at a high importance and say I'm willing to even disobey God and act in complaining in anger or lying, or in any other way, that dishonors him, that desire has transformed now into a lust, and it's a sinful lust before God. And because of our indwelling sin, we have to fight against that constantly. Certainly we have to fight against unlawful desires, but also these inordinate desires as well. So lust is this internal temptation that we were talking about. So when we say a lust is desiring after things that God calls evil or that we're desiring this thing more than pleasing God, that is this internal temptation that we have or lust that we have of wanting our own way instead of God's way. And so when we see here that temptation comes when we're carried away and enticed by our own lust, it's by those sinful desires in our heart that's what causes it. Who's to blame for that lust? Well, it's us. It's you. You are to blame. That's where James puts the blame here. It's not God's fault that you're tempted. It's the lust inside of your heart that's drawing you towards sin. Now, before I mentioned that word by in the previous verse of let no one say that he's tempted by God. And there was a, that by had the meaning of remoteness or indirectness. Well, there's a by in this verse too, but it's a different preposition. And the by in this verse, it means direct agency, directly caused by. And so James is not saying that uh, your lust plays a part. He's saying, no, it's, it's directly caused by your own lust. That is, that is the problem. That is who to blame. But he also explains not only where it comes from, by your own lust, but also how. That it is, you're tempted when you're carried away and enticed by your own lust. And these words, carried away and enticed, are very picturesque words. Um, it's a hunting term and it's a fishing term having to do with a bait. And you know how, uh, well, I don't know when you're hunting. I've never hunted anything. Uh, I have fished before, but, but you, you lure the animal out to trap them. And I obviously you know about bear traps, but certainly I'm familiar with fishing and that bait that's put out there. The hook is deep inside, but it entices the fish. It is something that that fish wants. And this is what happens, is we have this lust, this internal part of us in our heart that wants our own way, that goes towards sin. We're enticed and carried away by that thing. The place where this all happens, of course, is in our heart, right? Jesus said that. And oftentimes, James echoes a lot of what Christ has taught, and he says, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. We see all these things in verse 19. Those are words and actions. Murders, adulteries, or actions, and of course, a false witness, slanders, words, but they all come from one place. The sin starts in your heart. That is the source, and that is where the sin is coming from. And that's what James goes on to tell here. Tell us here is okay. Here's the source. It's it's the lust in your heart. And now he's going to tell us not only the true source, but now the tragic sequence in verse 15. So now we see what this looks like. So he says, lust then leads to sin, which then leads to death. And again, James uses picturesque language again, but no longer is using hunting and fishing terms, but now he's using terms of pregnancy and childbirth, we see. Lust has conceived, gives birth to sin. Now he doesn't go on to say, well, okay, explain how lust conceives. How do you understand this metaphor, how does that make sense? Well, he doesn't really explain it, because that's not his main point. His point is to show the sequence. But we can say it's when our will joins with our lust, when we have that desire and then we act it out. Lust is conceived, and then it gives birth to sin. Now, sin here is the normal word we use for birth, or the normal word we use for sin that we see a lot of places, hamartia. Uh, they talk about harmatiology in seminary, the study of sin. That's the word here, a very general term for sin. Um, and what James is saying here is lust will result in sin. Now, what's important to understand in the book of James is how he uses the word sin. Because sin in the book of James, when he uses it, it refers to actions of sin, the outworking of sin. James. As we see, we see faith on display. And sin, when he talks about it, is about sin displayed. So sin in James refers to actions, and we see examples of this. He talks about showing partiality is committing sin in chapter 2, verse 9. In chapter 4, verse 17, not doing the right thing is sin. Another example in 5.15, that prayer should be made for the forgiveness of sins committed. These point to outward acts of sin. And the reason I want to stress that and help you understand that is because some may look at the verse, verse 15, and say, lust conceives, gives birth to sin, saying, well, I guess lust isn't sin then. I guess that's okay. Sin doesn't come till later. But that is not what James is saying. James is saying the outward acts of sin are started by lustful thoughts. And in fact, those lustful thoughts are sin themselves. So we must not mistakenly think that lust is pre-sin. Lust is sin, and it will result in sinful actions. James says that is the pattern of things. That is where sin goes. And of course, it does not stop at sin. We see more in verse 15 there. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When it's accomplished, a word meaning full grown, or when it's brought to completion, then sin brings forth or gives birth to death. And that is where sin leads. That is always where sin leads. It leads to death. And we know it leads to physical death, that everyone dies because of The sin in the garden, but it leads to spiritual death as well. A separation from God. And that is an end that none of us want. You do not want to be spiritually dead, to be separated from God. And certainly you do not want eternal separation from God. And eternal death. But that is the result of sin. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. While the physical realities of physical death are horrible spiritual death is so much worse. So here we see this progression that James points out. It starts in the heart. It starts with sinful lust that results in sin and then results in death. Not a path we want to go down. And as we think of this path that James lays out of lust, it reminds us or could remind us of that earlier path in verses 2 to 4. Where trials bring endurance, which brings spiritual maturity. And I worked on a graphic to hopefully bring clarity to this. So God brings trials into our life, testing, to test the genuineness of our faith. And of course, we we should respond in faithful obedience to Him. Responding in faithful obedience results in endurance. And this is, again, verses 2 to 4, it talks about the... Testing of your faith, verse 3, produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance results in spiritual maturity. This is the path we want to go down. We want that spiritual maturity, because spiritual maturity, although it may sound like, I guess I want that, (laughs) that is joy in Christ. That is knowing the love of God and the joy of the Lord. That is the path we want. But what happens? Well, the issue comes in our heart. In our heart, we must make the decision, am I going to follow after God in faithful obedience? Or am I going to seek the things that I want? And now we see in verses 13 to 15 where things go wrong. Lust. Lust is the issue. When we want... Something other than faithful obedience. When we see something else and we lust after sin, that's where it gets sidetracked. And sin, as we looked at, leads to death. So here we see two different sequences. And we know which sequence we want to be on. And we see lust is the thing that sidetracks us. Is that internal desire. Remember, we're looking at internal lust here. That pull of our hearts towards wanting our own way instead of God's way. Now, where is Satan in this whole thing? This passage doesn't mention Satan, does it? Isn't Satan to blame for our sin? I thought he was the tempter. Well, Satan does something. Satan is the tempter, but this is what he does. He says, sin looks fantastic. Sin is great. He can't make you sin. You can't say the devil made me do it. And be accurate at least. But he says, Satan says, hey, immediate gratification, this is what you want. Get your own way. You deserve it. It can entice us to sin, but Satan doesn't cause us to sin. that is our lust that brings that sin. And so, to clarify using the terms, we see that lust is, that's the internal temptation. That's what draws us towards sin and external temptation caused by Satan in the world that that's what makes sin look good. but our problem that we must deal with is this internal temptation because as much as we want to avoid external temptation and we should do that, right If you know something's going to tempt you, be it something on the internet, driving by the ice cream store is going to tempt you, sure, go a different path or The brownie store? I don't know. Is there a brownie store? I don't know. Uh, I better not find one, or I'm going to have to look for new places to go home. Um, Avoid external temptation, but we can't always avoid external temptation. That's going to happen, but we can fight against our internal temptation or our lust. And then finally, recognizing that this sin that we see in verses 13 to 15 is this acts of sin But there is sin in the heart. The lust is sin in the heart as well. So hopefully this picture uh, helps you visualize a little bit what we've been talking about and what this looks like. And understanding where lust comes from, where trials come from, and the battles in our heart. So I want to answer a few questions that naturally arise from this passage. And then talk about application of these truths. So there's some natural questions I think that uh, come up. And the first is this, is temptation sin? Are you saying then that temptation is sin? And I think that's a legitimate question to ask. If we're saying God doesn't tempt, nor can he be tempted, well, you're saying then that, that temptation is sin. Am I in sin when I'm tempted? Well, hopefully as we've talked through the difference between internal and external temptation, you already are formulating the answer in your mind. The answer is no, not all temptation is sin. External temptation is not sin. That's going to come. And Christ was tempted externally and did not sin. Internal temptation, that lust, when we desire sin, and even in our minds start thinking about that, that is sin. Now the verse that can help us in this is 1 Corinthians 10.13. Which says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you will be able to endure it. So praise God that there is no external temptation that we can't avoid, or can't not do. Um, We don't have to be sucked in by temptation of Satan or the world. So not all temptation is sin. External temptation is not sinful. But that internal temptation is what we must fight, and that lusting after things is sin. So that there is an element that we must. It's not that just the actions alone are sin, but even in the heart can be sinful. Well, a second question that can arise is: if according to James 1:13, God can't be tempted, then how do we understand Christ's temptation? Isn't Christ God? Isn't he God in the flesh? So how does it mean that Christ um, was tempted if God can't be tempted? And that's, a very, again, a very legitimate question that we have to answer. We know uh, from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1 all talk about Jesus' temptation. We also know in Hebrews 4.15 speaks of Christ's temptation. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So as we see that, okay, Christ has been tempted in things as we are, and yet without sin, how does this make sense? Well, again, it comes back to uh, the internal and external temptation. And we the key phrase here, of course, is yet without sin. Christ was tempted, but there was no sin in him. There was nothing in Christ that longed towards pursuing that thing that Satan presented. Satan gave the external temptation. Christ did not have any internal temptation. He never lusted. He never said, I want something more than pleasing the Father. He never said, I know God said that's unlawful, but I want it anyway. That was not in him. He never longed after sin. So was Christ tempted? Yes. External temptation was there. Satan did tempt him. But did he internally, was he internally tempted? No. He did not. He faced that external, but there was nothing corresponding to that that lured his heart to lust. He was perfectly sinless in heart and deed. Now again, going back to our chart here, Okay, well, first, when James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted, well, James 1.13, as we said from the beginning, is talking about internal temptation. God can't be tempted. He has no uh, pull towards sin. So we see that in James 1.13. We're talking about that internal temptation. So graphically, again, this is what it looks like for us, that we have this lust, That draws us towards sin. That internal temptation that draws us towards sin. But in Christ's case, he didn't have that. There was the external sin was still there. There was the temptation that was still there. But nothing in his heart. There is no lust. There's nothing that's pulling him towards that. And so it was always faithful obedience. It was always endurance. In Christ's case, it wasn't growing in spiritual maturity. But it was proving his holiness, that he never had that drawing away to sin. So we can see, we can make sense now, okay, God can't be tempted. He doesn't have that internal temptation, but Christ, yes, he was externally tempted by Satan. The third question that could come up is, if God doesn't tempt us, why does Jesus teach us to pray, lead me not into temptation? The model prayer that we know, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer or Disciple's Prayer. God encouraged us, Jesus taught us to pray in this way. Well, how are we to understand this? I believe the best way to understand this is this is the prayer of a humble person saying, Lord, do not lead me to a testing where I'm going to fail. I do not want to fail. I do not want to dishonor you in any way. Lord, do not not lead me into that trial or testing that will become a temptation for me because I know my own heart and I know my propensity towards sin. And hopefully we all have that heart where we don't even trust ourselves and say, God, keep me from things that I know might cause me to dishonor you. And thankfully we have the promise that there's not going to become an external temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 again. There will be no temptation, but God will, can't provide a way of escape. He'll always provide that way for you. You do not have to sin as a believer. So that is possible. But we shouldn't, because of that promise, think, well, then give me all the temptations in the world because I always will have a way of escape. That's not a humble heart and not recognizing your own weakness. So I think this passage is is helpful for us to understand the path of temptation and sin. But I don't want just for us to walk away from this passage feeling like, okay, I understand temptation more. But how do we apply this passage? How do we make sure that we take what God is saying here in this text and that our lives change by it? Well, the first point of application we have to make is do not blame God or others for your sin. Even though it's the natural inclination of our hearts to find someone else to sin, and even though blaming God seems like the best way to go, that's blasphemous against his holy character. We must not blame God, not even in a roundabout way. Well, these circumstances you created, or it's the... Type of person you made me, God, the parents you gave me, the spouse you gave me, God. That's all blasphemous. God does not lead you to sin. It is your own lust that does that. Don't blame God for your sin. Don't deny your responsibility. But secondly, repent from your sin. I mean, we can end, the, uh, conclude after the first point okay, it's all my fault. All my sin is my fault. And you're right. All my sin is my fault. And that could lead us to despair. Like, great. How do I have hope? How do I go on? When all the bad things in my life I know is that results of my sin is because of my own lust. How do I go on? There is hope because God provides forgiveness. God will forgive you confess your sins to the Lord if you've made a mess of your life you know what God has great grace grace greater than your sin don't stop at recognizing your sin without following that up by going to God for forgiveness and being changed being washed clean and made new and not just in justification that is certainly true but every day Daily sanctification. Confessing sin to the Lord. Daily going to the Lord and saying, it was my fault I sinned. Lord, make me new. Make me more like Christ. We need to continue to live the gospel each day. But the third important point I want to make is change your appetite as well. If you want to be less drawn towards sin, and hopefully you do, I pray that you do. Sin brings misery. Change your appetite. Die to sinful desires and delight in Christ. So in the silly illustration I gave about gummy worms and brownies, that if I suddenly started hating brownies, you know, my taste changed, I found something much better, and I never wanted to eat them again, then it wouldn't tempt me anymore. You can have a plate of brownies in front of me, and I wouldn't be drawn toward it. May that be the way we are toward sin. It is out there. You think, why would I want that? That's like a sour gummy worm. I don't want that. (laughs) May that be how sin is in our hearts, that we have no appetite for it. May we see the glories and pleasure and thrones of this world as worth nothing. As worse than nothing. They're rubbish. In fact, they're filthy, stinking, diseased objects that you don't want anymore. Because it dishonors God. So you don't even want to go near that. That's how Christ saw those things. Like, I don't want, why would I want that? Why would I want something that dishonors God? It's not tempting to me. We need to be more like Christ. May we see sin for what it is. May we see those things that that look alluring. That's like, oh, you know, uh, someone who's not your spouse. um, Telling someone off of, hey, I can get more riches if I just lie on my taxes, whatever it is. I'm not even interested in that. All the praise of men, all the things of this world, just lose, you lose your appetite for them. If you do that, you're not going to be drawn towards these acts of sin. You kill the lust in your heart, do the battle in the heart, and then it becomes very easy to say no to things. It's like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm I'm not even desiring that anymore. Do the battle there in your heart and not only see the worthlessness of sin, but see the glory of Christ. Fill your heart with how wonderful that is. Delight in the forgiveness of God. Delight in the hope of glory. Delight in the joy of the Lord and all the great promises of his word. Fill your mind with those things and then... Yeah, sin, that doesn't look even appealing to me anymore. Fill your heart with what is wonderful about the Lord and continue to remind yourself the garbage that the rest of the world has to offer. This is how we fight sin in our life. Changing your affections. Change what you love. Change what you desire after. And you know what? As you go along that path and you put sin out of your life and you're obeying God, you find joy in that, it becomes naturally less and less appealing. You start a pattern in your life of obedience, a pattern of joy in worshiping the Lord that you'll find yourself um, more easily, day by day, um, rejecting sin and loving Christ. So I urge you, let's, let's go down that path. Let's have our affections on Christ. I'll pray for us here. Lord, we thank You for the truth of Your Word that You make clear in Your Word what would otherwise be very confusing to us. And Lord, we thank You that it is so clear what garbage sin is and the destruction that leads to death. Lord, we, we do not want that for ourselves or for anyone else. Lord, and yet Christ leads to joy and obedience to Him. God, give us more of a love for the things of Christ, for the hope of heaven. Lord, for the fellowship of the saints, give us a love for Your truth and a distaste for the world, Lord. Make us like Christ, who just desired to please You in all things, God. Lord, may we honor You this week in all things, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.